G'day everyone, this is Greg Ryan and welcome to episode 15 of Rare and Resilient 1 in 5,000 podcast and it's my pleasure to welcome Katrina who was born with imperfect anus 63 years ago and lives in England and she's very graciously going to share her story which is story number 130 in the book page 288 so it's wonderful to have Katrina join us how are you Katrina I'm very well thank you Greg it's lovely to talk to you and before I start this podcast I really want to say thank you heartfelt thanks to you Greg from the UK for facilitating this experience um, and as and as people will hear as I read my story that I you know, I'm just very grateful to you that's all that's all I can say without getting emotional. Absolutely, please. <laughs> right, as, as Greg said, my name is Katrina, and I was born in 1957. I've my story is broken down into various sections. So um, the first bit is the diagnosis, which was the tracheoesophageal fistula with esophageal atresia, a cloaca with anal rectal malformation, volvulus, which required bowel resection and colostomy. Later diagnosed with bicornuate uterus with abnormal fallopian tubes hemivertebrae and an extra thumb, which I think comes under the Vactoral Association um, heading nowadays, um, but certainly didn't back in 1957. So my first paragraph is a childhood lost. Uh, and when Greg asked me about writing this, I was just words that came into my head really. And thinking about my childhood as being always anxious, frightened, in a fight or flight mode, always alert, and always expecting the worst, alone and sometimes terrified of what was happening and what was going to happen. Loss of control, adults asking questions I had no answers to. Why did I poo in my pants? Projecting their anxieties about my future onto me, a lost child struggling to understand their grown up language and medical jar jargon which accompanied it. Told I must work hard at school, must get a good job, or no one would want to marry me, that I would never be able to have children. I hated the physical loss of control when my body would not behave as it should. Many times I would be unaware of fecal leakage until it was too late, and my only warning was a horrible smell oozing out of my underwear. I hated being unable to correct or at least improve the situation. Quite by chance, when I was about 10 years old, I discovered that folded toilet tissue in my knickers absorbed some of the feces and the tissue could easily be flushed in the loo. I was still left with that nauseating smell and bits of feces, which had somehow managed to avoid the wad of tissue and soak into my pants, but at least it was a bit more tolerable. Until periods started, then it was a desperate mess. Isolation. My hospital was 50 miles from home. There were no facilities for parents to stay so far away that they could not visit every day. I remember planning my escape from the ward and walking down several flights of stairs before a nurse found me and returned me to my bed. I would stare out of the window thinking I'd see, I could see my home over the top of the high rise buildings. Watching the ward round from a distance Feeling so scared, knowing they would eventually come to me, invade my space with their strange, unrecognizable language, their probing hands, biting the arm of a nurse, 
She hurt me pushing that stiff rectal tube in my already damaged abnormal rectum. After this, they started giving me sedation prior to the soap and water enemas. I think that was worse as this just made me hate them more. They could do what they wanted and I couldn't fight back. Falling into an abyss, hearing their voices but not being able to respond, to protest or to protect myself from their prying eyes and fingers. I would wake up and have no idea what the doctors had done. I would be cross with myself that I hadn't been able to stop them, that I was not strong enough to put up a fight, to escape. Painful, invasive examinations and procedures, lights above my head when wheeled into theater for yet another manual evacuation. The overwhelming smell of anesthetic gases, the hateful, horrid anesthetic mask. Doctors peering at me over masks, so desperately scary. I was always bloated, uncomfortable, gaseous, hideously constipated. 17 days was my longest without a bowel action or uncontrollable diarrhea. There was no in-between, no normal. So many medications, laxatives and enemas making me feel sick. The toilet was my enemy. I was made to sit for what seemed like forever. And there was always a man's face in the water staring at my bottom. He made it much harder to relax, to push. Not that I would have done much good. I no, never told anyone he was in the toilet. My mind was playing tricks, I guess. Smell, foul fecal smell pervading everything on my hands, under my nails, up my nose, in my underwear. Parents being told by pediatricians that I'm naughty. No one, including medics, understanding the implications of absent muscles, absent nerves, scarred from surgeries occurring at birth, failing to function correctly. I couldn't help being constipated or soiling, yet I was made to feel it was somehow my fault, and eventually I believed it was. My parents were told I had behavioural issues. I read that in my notes many years later, how wrong they all were. My physical body couldn't comply, and somehow I was labelled naughty. Striving for independence, washing soiled pants, putting them to dry on the radiator, not really clean, the smell of feces filling the room, my mum getting cross, never enough toilet paper in the house to meet my needs, always needing loads, sometimes using newspaper, inevitably blocking the toilet drainage system. Socially isolated at school, always smelly, embarrassed, bullied, felt different, ugly, Hideous scars remarked on frequently in the shower block after physical education sessions. Children can be so very cruel. Learning to swim, bits of feces leaking out into the swimming pool, trying to scoop them up and shove them in the filter system. Strangely, no adults seemed to notice, or maybe they did. Sports, running around made feces sneak out into my pants. What to do with a stinky mess at school? Only babies soiled their pants. It's so often viewed as dirty and antisocial. I shared a bed with my younger sister, which meant my sleep was superficial because I worried I would soil our bed. I remember waking and realizing my feces were on her leg, dried on hard and difficult to budge. I remember trying to clean it without disturbing her, the smell lingering on my hands. Adulthood, a life rebalanced, the power of positive touch, of understanding and of love. Adulthood provided me with the opportunity to learn about, to understand and to accept my conditions, 
living alongside it and managing it as opposed to always being at odds with it. I developed strategies to manage my unpredictable bowels, spare underwear and tissues are my constant companions. I was told I would never marry when I was about nine years old, but in 1983, Mike and I were married. In 1988, Mike and I adopted two sisters, Stephanie and Roberta. We became the parents to two beautiful little girls. And in the autumn of our lives, we're now blessed with boisterous grandchildren to keep us on our toes. We're very lucky to spend wonderful days with our precious family. My husband thinks I'm hyper aware of smells and I can get quite paranoid about bowel odors. He's probably right, but I know I can't change that sensitivity now. I trained to be a nurse, Caring for very sick and life-limited children helped me to appreciate the gift of good health. So many children are faced with much higher, harsher mountains to climb, and sadly, many never reach the top. I see myself as lucky. I have a wonderful life with my truly incredible husband by my side. He's helped me enormously on this journey and continues to blow me away with his unconditional love. I have amazing family and friends, and with their love and support, I've reached the top of my personal mountain. In my opinion, acceptance is essential. Gaining emotional strength from sharing my experience with, with family, friends and others born with similar abnormalities. Being proud of who I am rather than ashamed. I am determined that ARM does not define me. Sometimes it's hard to be positive and I honestly do allow myself periods of reflection and wonder what life would be like if my embryonic self had taken a different pathway, but it didn't. And this is me, 63 years on and still dancing. I was given a life and it's my responsibility to grasp it with both hands and live that life to the fullest. I share my ARM journey to recognize and honor my amazing parents, Neville and Patricia, who were just 17 years old when I was born. Many would say, just children themselves. They rose to the many challenges I and the medical professionals presented them. This was the United Kingdom in the 1950s. There were only general practitioners for support, no community nurses, stoma specialists, no one for 50 miles who understood my health needs. My parents advocated for me and they gave me the tools to face my future with courage and confidence. They believed in me, they loved me. I would like to thank, take the opportunity to thank Greg Ryan. He's helped me to remove the overcoat of embarrassment and shame that has weighed heavily on my shoulders for many years. I now walk tall and free. Oh, Katrina, <laughs> I've got to tease myself. It's just, <laughs> even though I, I know your story so well and we've talked so much over the last 12, 18 months and, you know, I've read your story many times and when we edited it for the book, just hearing you read it, it just... Yeah, it's incredibly emotional, and you got through it. <laughs> Does it sound like a load of gobbledygook? <laughs> no, it, it was absolutely wonderful. And for someone like myself and others around our vintage, mm -hmm. we know that journey so well. Mm. We can all relate to so many of the aspects that you covered so wonderfully in the in your story. Um, and I'm just so proud of you for sharing it with us and i know that there'll be many people listening to the podcast right now who will be having tissues in their hand as well <laughs> and they'll be just so in awe of what you've done to be able to get you through your life and 
to be so able to open up and I know what it's like to open up that first time and it's it's not easy is it no gosh no not at all no because I've had a few friends who've bought the book and they, they've just said I, I never realized I had no idea and I said well why would you but and they said but I'm your friend and I'm your friend why didn't you share and you just don't it's not something I don't know why you don't share is mm. it is it all wrapped up in embarrassment about soiling I, I don't know is it such a basic thing that we like to keep private I, I, is as you say and your book the secret life you know it's <laughs> even even my husband and my brother and, and as I say family other family members are just no idea really but yeah you have facilitated this for so many people around the world you have you took the first step I, I think you went put your toe in the water and you had the courage to do that and the rest of us have followed you like disciples really <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want other kids to feel like you and I felt Yes. And when I was nursing, one of the th things that I often did, and sometimes the other staff would be quite taken aback, was when you know, so many professionals tell children to be brave and not exhibit their emotion. And I was quite opposite to that. And I would actually say, you've got every right to scream and kick and shout, and we will find other ways to help you through this. But don't try and tell a child not to be emotional about what they're going through don't tell them to be brave because that, that's why should they be brave why should they hold it in these are awful things that you know children have to go through and are still having to go through you know the surgery although for some it works out for some it doesn't uh, and they're still faced with invasive procedures every day um, yeah. I think I was uh, this morning I and I work about 4 a.m with with quite quite significant abdominal pain and I thought that's one of the things that I think people without this condition it isn't just the anal rectal area it can be the whole gut that's affected um, and foods different foods that can affect you and different um, activities and levels of anxiety and you've always got that in the back of your mind you know that the fact that it may you may suddenly get the need to go to the loo and it may well be uncontrollable um, and it may well be really solid stool and then suddenly it may well be followed by a gush of gas or gush or a, a, a rush of loose stool so it's it's that kind of um i, I like to say it's the unpredictability because yeah. and i've said this many times to doctors we wake up every morning just hoping we're going to get through the day without having an issue but we don't know yeah 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 i think i messaged you about that re recently about i mean I, I go i go to a local swimming pool quite regularly you know a couple of times a week three times a week and there's always that in my mind as i'm swimming what if i suddenly have a burst of gas and it's more than just gas um and, and and I don't think other people think that. It never goes to their head, probably. But. No, and we we would love to know what it's like to have a normal digestive system, wouldn't it? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and I think you know what you eat. It's it's sometimes some things are absolutely fine, and then other times, uh, it, yeah. 
but then you know that you you kind of have to just broaden it out and think you know lots of people carry a lot of anxiety over health issues on their shoulders and we just have to be strong and I think the sharing makes it a lot more easier to cope with and that you've you again I keep saying you facilitated that Greg oh no you give me too much credit <laughs> don't worry about this <laughs> we're all in this together Katrina what would you say to parents of young kids that are born now and they're just saying their journey what would what would you say to them to say how for them i think some parents are still told that it's all going to be fine that they've had the surgery and then they've had the stoma reverse maybe and everything's going to be fine and i think that's very unfortunate because it can be maybe there is i don't know what the percentage are maybe you do maybe the, the, the the colorectal surgeons that you're in contact with know but i would imagine that the percentage of people of children going through straightforward into adulthood not having any problems is very small and i think that false hope is wrong the fixed mentality that what we in the adult world call it isn't it that we were yeah, told we were fixed yeah and that's what we i was we were told you know my parents were told and that's why they just get incredibly frustrated and cross and you get frustrated and cross with yourself as well because you think you've been fixed everybody tells you you've been fixed and it's a balance because you don't want to fill them, you know, with despair that they're going to have a child that's always got uh, con- uh, got continence issues. Um, I think the important some of the important things are regulate, keeping an eye on diet and, and noticing, you know, maybe keeping food diaries to see if there are certain things that do trigger constipation or tr- trigger diarrhea. I think core strength exercises, which were never even touched on for well for years and years of, of growing up. Um, and now I think from a little bit of knowledge that I have about children born with say spina bifida or other um, bowel problems that they are teaching physio or encouraging physio, encouraging that core strength so that children can use abdom- abdominal muscles. Um, I saw a colorectal surgeon a couple of years ago and we talked about how I'd managed to achieve some level of continence, well, good level of continence really. Um, and he was just saying about it's trained what you've what I'd done without even knowing I'd done it was trained other pelvic floor muscles and abdominal muscles. Um, so that, I think that needs to come into a part of a support package for parents, you know, physio or and abdominal mus- massage as well. That's very good. I think it's about it is, for, for parents, it's just about patience. And that's really tough because they desperately want their child to be continent. Um, but it is always about, you know, not uh, trying, trying not to blame their child. And I know certainly from my generation, there was a lot of blame uh, and that can affect your relationship with your child. Uh, it's also trying to educate the public around you, which isn't always easy because you don't want your ch- child to be labelled, but sometimes friends and family need to know that these accidents will happen and it's n- of no fault whatsoever. But I think it's very difficult for people who've got f- you know, full pelvic, pelvic floor muscles and nerves to understand the level of damage that's been done. Yeah. How do you think your nursing background has influenced how you've got through your life i well i think as i say in in the book really i I think by the time i'd got to my late teens and i started nursing i'd got a lot more bowel control um and i think nursing just opened my eyes to what so many people have to cope with and 
manage um and also it gave me a confidence i think as well to be to self-advocate you know to be confident to go to a, a my gp or um as i said re- in the last couple of years I, I was looking for a colorectal specialist and i live in quite a rural part of england um and i saw a, a gynecologist who thank goodness had the courage and the confidence to say to me this is outside my remit but I think there's somebody um, within um, 50 miles, again, 50 miles away in Birmingham um, that could help you. And I'd actually already um, researched this particular surgeon um, and was able to go to my GP and say, this is who I need to see. This is who I believe will help me. And and I think maybe the nursing, maybe the nursing does that, or maybe that's just an, an inherent, you know, I had very, considering my parents were so young, they had to grow up very quickly and they were extremely good advocates for me. I can remember my father when I was about eight years old and I was struggling with severe constipation. I was in the local hospital and I remember him very clearly. He would have been in his early, what would he have been, 25, 24, you know, and he just turned around and said to the, 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 the consultant if you don't sort this out I'm taking my daughter to Birmingham we'll, we'll travel the 50 miles and we're going you know and we don't want to be bullshit but at the same time we have to parents have to advocate and they have to have the knowledge and um, understanding and information so I think those kind of traits that I had perhaps from my parents anyway and then there was they were further enhanced by the condition I was born with and the and, and then my nurse training then really to, to just made me an advocate I think advocate for other people who were struggling maybe to be find the words they needed or get the information together so it kind of like was sort of symbiotic really you know the one enhanced the other and do you think you found that to advocate for others because you <clears throat> didn't have a voice when you were young yes yes very much so Yes, and as I said earlier on, it was, you know, around when people used to say to you, just need to be brave, or they would, you you, you just had to be brave, you weren't allowed to, and you never, you never talked through a procedure before it happened, and you never talked through the procedure after it happened, so you were just left in this kind of, as I said right at the beginning of the story, this always in this fight and flight, this fear that a fear of adults fear of hospitals and I knew I had symptoms many many times particularly with um with the with the tracheosophageal fistula side of things with the esophageal atresia that I'd have reflux I never told anybody that I had this horrible bile taste in my mouth a lot of the time and I would I would sick vomit bile because it meant I'd have to go to hospital and I and I absolutely didn't want to do that so I spent again quite <laughs> kept that to myself so it, it, it's it, yeah yeah absolutely you are left you are frightened and you when you're nursing and I nurse children you don't want them to be frightened you don't want the parents to be frightened either um, so it's important to advocate for the parents and the, and the child well I've heard children shouting and I've walked into treatment rooms before now and said to doctors you need to stop you stop now because this is not this is not acceptable I can remember one little boy many years ago I was working on an acute ward and he would not take his jeans off to go down to theatre I think it was a hernia repair or something fairly straightforward but absolutely didn't want to take his jeans and trainers off so I just said right okay that's how we'll do it you know and he went to theatre on the operating trolley and the anaesthetist looked at me and I said this is how it's going to be done until we can give him some sedation 
then you can take his trousers off. And yeah. <laughs> what would you be advised for parents when the kids start their schooling? Oh, I think you've, again, it's, it, it, it's about, it's about that balance, isn't it, about who you share with. And I think the school absolutely have to know um, that they're going to be need to get to the bathroom or the, you know, they will be too late. Um, and I do think we are getting there because children have got a, a number of children with physical problems that are being addressed in schools. But it, it was all, as I, and probably with you, it was, well, you were being naughty. So the school didn't, didn't understand anything. My parents didn't understand anything. So now it's, it is about education and working closely with the school but, and maybe having a buddy system. I, I don't, I honestly don't know. I think it, it is a bit of a, it is a bit of a minefield really. But I think that we have come forward. We are be- a lot better than we were in that we, we understand that ch- children have all sorts of ailments, conditions, and we have to be understanding and, and empathetic and supportive but it isn't easy I don't think it's easy when you first met Mike how long did it take you to open up to him about all your conditions it's I suppose he knew very early on that I probably wouldn't be able to have children because that was always my you know I'm not going to invest I'm not going to invest in a relationship with someone who you know, a year or two down the line, I then kind of like drop it into conversation and uh, they walk. So he knew very quickly that uh, the chances are that I couldn't um, conceive. And, and that was due to the cloaca um, yeah, diagnosis. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, um, problems with the fallopian tubes and the bicornuate uterus and yeah, yeah. Um, I did go to see Professor Winston, who at that time was leading um, obstetrician in this country, Lord Winston, he became Robert Winston. And it was always, it was just a case of I didn't want to get to 40 and find that something could have been done. And he was amazing because he was very, he was very honest with me and said that this wasn't going to happen. And I remember Mike was obviously with me and I remember um, very clearly him saying that I wouldn't wouldn't successfully conceive and I, I wouldn't be able to even if I could I couldn't hold a pregnancy maintain a pregnancy and I said it's okay I was out of the door I was actually holding the door handle with my foot out of the door Mike and the this consultant was still sitting down and I was going out the door saying it's okay because we're going to adopt and uh, he came to me and put his arm around me and said Mrs Tyler come and sit down this is a time for grief you need to give yourself time to come to terms with this loss um, before you go into adoption. And he was right. <laughs> he was right. But uh, I was halfway out the door. <laughs> and as for the, you know, any kind of continence issues around, uh, you know, my um, uh, congenital, uh, congenital anomalies, yeah, Mike, as I think I said in the book, you know, sometimes he, he'd say, he, I'd be saying to him, do I smell? Is there a smell? <laughs> and he knows he's caught me, you know, well, caught me, he's helped me before now when I suddenly had, uh, thank goodness it hasn't happened many times, but a, a, an acute, a really acute abdominal pain that's almost started from under my diaphragm and within seconds I've lost control of my bowel. And I remember doing it once when we were camping in Wales and it was like, oh, 
crikey, how am I going to manage this? You know, everything was just a mess. And I'm in a field in a tent. Oh, dear. <laughs> but you do, don't you? You get through it. Well, I avoided <laughs> camping like the plague, I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> You're very brave. Yeah. Pardon? You're very brave to go camping because I wouldn't. <laughs> Well, as you can imagine, everything went in the in the in the dustbin. But then I was paranoid, thinking I feel sorry for the other campers because they'll open the lid of this bin and they'll get this terrible smell. <laughs> Think we, what, the, what, what the hell's in there? And that's one thing that I find that people don't realise how we're so aware of, like even going to public toilets ourselves. We're just oh. we've got this. I don't know if it's a barrier or because of what it is, but there, there is an issue, like you say, about the smelling. It's it's something ingrained in us, isn't it? It is. It is, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, it is because that, it's strange you should say that because I was in over at the, the beach a couple of days ago and needed to use the loo because, again, you can't, you know, like other people who perhaps have a bowel action once a day or once every couple of days. I don't know about you, but I can go five times a day sometimes. And then yeah, I understand. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I get through that much loo roll for goodness sake. Um, but that's a separate issue. But um, yeah, I went and I had to had to have a bowel action and I'm sat there and then, you know, the gas always seems to be louder than anybody else's and it seems to be smellier than anybody else's. And then I avoided eye contact with people when I'm washing my hands because I think they'll think, oh, that's the woman that's left that smell in the loop. When I talked to my husband about it, he just says, you're just paranoid. Everybody's like, <laughs> yeah. you're right, it's ingrained in us. So, How did your daughters react to when they read your story? They had no idea, absolutely no idea. So you hadn't, you, hadn't, you hadn't told them the full story? No, no, no. I hadn't told anybody, really. Even my, my husband, Mike, he, he read it before I sent it to you. Um, and he was... He just had no idea, really. And he says to me now that he's, he's just in awe of me and I'm not in awe of myself but that he is in awe of me that he says sometimes I cannot believe what you've coped with and stuff like that and my brother was you know my sister knows I've done the story but she she's I think she just struggles to read it because yeah anyway I don't know but my brother didn't know until he read my book really yeah I kept it from him as well but people people find that uh, incredible how you can keep it but it becomes second nature doesn't yeah I don't know whether you keep it because you're just embarrassed by it or I actually think it's it's partly because we're told not to make a fuss that goes back to being a pediatric nurse and saying to children it's okay to make a fuss it's okay to be loud and noisy about this it's okay to be cross Um, we'll provide you tools through play specialists um, through education to help you on that journey whereas we were told we were making a fuss so why would we share it why would anybody be interested in it even uh and i don't i'm my i don't want sympathy yeah i don't want people fussing around me thank you (laughs) i couldn't agree more yep so how did your daughters react sorry i went off on the tangent then they were um blown away i think really you know that i'd sent it to them both um and the older one was 
I never, re- you know, well, ne- neither of them realised and just really, again, it sounds like I can blow my own trumpet, but it's about just, you know, how brave we were and how um, pain tolerant we are, how, <laughs> how we, yeah, you know, we have a high pain threshold, I think, because of those things. I don't think until I started to write it as well that I really felt how absolutely invasive these procedures were at such a young age I think I've I think I've kept that very much deep within my soul Um, and to find the words when I wrote the story really came from somewhere deep within me that's been hidden away (laughs) Uh, um, and now we would say let's just be careful with these children because what we're doing is very abnormal around their what we call private area their perineal area it's it's very abnormal for people to be sticking tubes and fingers and poking and prying but my daughters were very we have a very yeah bless them yeah they said all sorts of wonderful things but i'm like just come on just get on with it <laughs> Don't fuss. Well, one of the great things that they do these days is and i didn't even realize this until like i i had some surgery recently and i had to see the colorectal surgeon before she gave me the examination that we we all know so well she Mm -hmm. actually asked me permission to do it yes 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 i've never had that in my life no no no. and that and but i think that's what they do even with children and you know yes i was really taken aback by it yes yes yeah, yeah. It's interesting that as well, because I can remember doing that kind of invasive procedure on children through through suppositories or enemas or, and finding that really quite difficult because it oh. felt like it was happening to me again. Um, oh, yeah, I can imagine that would have been yeah, really, yeah, it just yeah. would have been a trigger yeah. for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I suppose nursing could have worked the other way. It could have made me... You know, well, it, 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 I could have given up. I, I, you know, I never felt the need. I never, ever felt the need to give up um, during the training or the many years afterwards. But I, perhaps for some people who think that that's what they want to do, when you've got those triggers, I do remember the anaesthetic gas. Um, oh, yeah. Again, <laughs> yeah. And it brings back awful memories, just the, the smell. And you, you smell. can't describe it. And maybe yeah. it was because of back in our day and, I don't know, but yeah, you'd walk into a hospital and you'd smell it straight away. It's sort of like yeah. it hits you between yeah. the eyes, wouldn't it? Yes, yes. And I think lying there on the trolley and I remember going through what seemed like endless corridors. And of course, you didn't have a parent with you or you didn't really have anyone who interacted with you in those days. You know, there'd be somebody pushing the trolley one end and somebody pulling it and off they'd go and they'd be chatting to each other instead of talking to you. And you'd be lying flat instead of being able to sit up why you had to lie flat god only knows but you couldn't sit up and you just see the lights above your head in the corridor and then you'd be left in a room the anesthetic room and be looking at all those rubber orange bright orange rubber tubes on the wall and (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) you okay i'm having flashbacks as we speak sorry (laughs) 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 yeah so i i you know when you talk about what advice for parents now 
whether they're you know, newborns, whether they're toddlers, whether they're school age, whether they're teenagers, it is about gather as much information around you as you can gather in supportive people around. Um, they won't understand. They, and it is about the knowing about how numb everything feels. Well, it just doesn't feel. You just don't have that sensation. And, 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 and for parents being, you know, gathering, gathering, educating themselves, gathering information, join a support group, be selective about the people that you choose to share with. Um, you know, that they're trustworthy and strong. Um, and being that, because you've got all of that behind you, you can then be that advocate for your child. Because the children, a lot of the children are still having problems, aren't they? That's the thing. They're still having issues, despite the improved surgical techniques, despite the preoperative assessments and involvement and being and having advocates and having... You know, we've come a huge way in, I mean, I'm 60, whatever, 64 soon, and, you know, massive way, and there's still a long way to go, but it is about holding on to the positives of where we've come. We're not putting children on trolleys, and then we're not leaving them in an anaesthetic room so that they're looking at masks and orange rubber tubing and smelling gases, you know, so. The parents can stay with them overnight, not the oh. house. Absolutely. Paediatric Pedi care has improved, well, beyond beyond recognition to the 1950s. So, um, yeah, my memories, you know, the, the things that I experience and you experience, children, hopefully, will never experience again. But The next question, if you were talking to a teenage girl born with cloaca now, yeah. which we have a lot of in our community, what would you say to her? I think that's a really difficult one. I think you don't feel feminine. And I think I, I probably am a very feminine person, woman, but you don't feel it. You feel different because of your anatomy. And again, it's about understanding it and, and knowing what, what kind of repair surgery you've had. But the bottom line is that for me, I didn't feel as feminine perhaps or as female as other, other people around me until I kind of got to grips with the fact that, yeah, I've got an abnormal perineal area, but it still functions. Um, obviously later on, my, you know, my mother, my, I, remember, I remember my mother telling me, and I think that's, it's not a criticism of my mother, but she was actually mopping the floor when she turned around and said to me, and I was about, mm, how old would I have been? About nine. I can remember the house we were living in. So, And she turned around and said, well, I don't know why you like that boy, because you'll never be able to have, you'll never get, be able to get married and you'll never be able to have children. And I can hear it so clearly. Um, oh, and I dear think if, me. Yeah. She was cross with everything. She was cross with lots of things. Not, not when I look back, not long before that, my youngest sister had been born and she died um, of spina bifida and hydrocephalus. So she died at four months. So my mum had, had got a lot of anger and a lot of confusion inside her. So she just came out with this very harsh, I can see the black and white tiles on the kitchen floor. Um, and I don't, uh, but so again, if they're, if again, we, we didn't have scanning, which of course they've got now. Um, 
you know, nobody had scanned me to know whether I'd got a uterus or fallopian tubes, or I didn't know until I was much older that I'd got problems with my tubes and my, my uterus. I didn't know that until I was in my middle twenties. So um, again, that information is there and should be, you know, if someone's, if someone's born with a cloaca, then that information should be, those investigations should be done at an early age so that parents are ready to be able to support their, you know, their young, their young daughters and that these things aren't coming out as shocks or they're not coming out at, in moments of anger or frustration or a doctor doesn't just drop it into conversation, you know, about your infertility and you never knew you were infertile, if that makes sense. So for, for a young woman born with cloaca, um, I think, again, it's very, very different because, as I say, the investigations are there, the knowledge is there. And uh, support groups, I think, are all very well. But it is a balance because you can, and I've seen this happen with some of the groups with the tracheosophageal fistula, you can find, you know, some people are, their whole life has been dictated to by their, or determined by their anomalies. And I know we've said just now, it's always there, it's always in the back of our heads. But it's also important to try and I think dig deep within your soul and, and and find positive things in life otherwise you can be so determined by it that it's very difficult to get out of that trench so i'm going off on a tangent here really but the one thing i think that has come across incredibly well and you should be so proud of it is you've never let it define you no outwardly anyway you haven't let it hold you back in any way look you've been able to be a nurse be a mother be a wife you know you've the, the most important thing i want people to get out of this is that even though you've had an incredibly difficult journey you're a star <laughs> sound like my husband <laughs> but lots of people are stars but aren't I, they lots of people dig deep and you know, it isn't always easy, but what I just think you have two choices in life. You have to take the path of that's it that takes immense courage and immense you have to really dig deep. But I try to take the path of joy. Whereas the path where I'm just constantly focused on what I was born with just would lead me into a life of sadness. And I've I've been exposed to so much love and support and positivity on this journey on this path I think I could have just I don't know I don't think it's in my nature there we go maybe that's what it is maybe it's in within our DNA I don't know I think if I if I'd you know, if I'd let some of those dreadful experiences define me I I would not have done the things I've done in my life yeah that's probably one yeah no very good way of expressing it I always like to ask the question about the mental health toll it takes on adults, children, parents. How do you think it's the, the effect it's had on your mental health in different times over your life? Oh, definitely. I don't. I didn't realise it when I was younger, but I can look back and I think I was a very solitary I felt always felt sad I always felt different I always felt 
nervous, um, anxious about having an accident. Um, just the maybe people didn't think feel it, but I felt isolated from people, and I think that did have. I don't feel I was very sociable. Um, and then in my teens, I think I was, I know I was angry about things, more angry than you know, to the point where I even got into fights over nothing with other girls. And I'm sure, you know, fights being hair pulling and having a bit of a whack around, which sounds awful now, but it would be over something quite trivial. But I think deep within me, it was because I'd got these abnormalities, scars, the emotional damage is done at a very, very early age. And I think it wasn't until I became more able to manage my continence that it wasn't a case of, you know, because you feel physically, you feel, I'm sorry, but you feel like crap. You know, you really do feel really horrible sometimes. You're so bloated, you're so uncomfortable. Um, the clothes are uncomfortable. You've got gas, you know, you're leaking. You feel different and that has so those years were when I look back you know six six decades those that first decade and a half were the worst as far as my mental health was concerned would you advocate for parents if they see their child struggling at whatever age to get some assistance special assistance like psychosocial assistance Yes. yes absolutely Absolutely. Um, I did uh, not, obviously that wasn't, wasn't the done thing then. And nobody really recognized that I was coping with this, uh, challenge, these challenges. But looking back, when you say about mental health, I mean, my mental health plummeted, although I knew, I knew in my heart, I wasn't going to be able to conceive when Lord Winston finally said to me, this isn't going to happen. I did go into quite a depression. Well, depression perhaps is too, no, I, I yeah, I was depressed. I did. It did. It did affect me, and it, of course, my my friends and my peers were all falling pregnant, um, and that was really tough time. Um, so that I would say the hardest time though was really growing up and not knowing that this was. I'm sure I had lo low grade depression for years, and then I remember actually seeing a counsellor, and we talked right about went we went right back to when. I was born and taken from my mum. I remember saying to my mum, it came out in conversation that I'd been taken 50, 60 miles away on my own in an ambulance and that she hadn't seen me for two or three weeks. And I was quite astonished because as a pediatric nurse, that didn't happen nowadays. And I, I, I said, what? You, you didn't see me. I was, you didn't see me at all. And she was, she just took it in her stride. She was like, well, no, of course I didn't. You know, you were in Birmingham and, you know, I just had a baby and, <laughs> and we didn't, nobody went with you. And my father interjected and said that he used to come and see me. And then I told this counsellor that that had happened. And maybe that's why my relationship with my mum struggled. At, my, my relationship with mum struggled at times. Never with my father, but with my mother. My bond was fluid <laughs> at times but uh, this counsellor said so what would you do if you saw that baby now that baby that was on her own didn't have a parent nurses were probably too busy uh, and um, we talked through what I felt I would do 
sit with that baby, stroke that baby's hand if I had to put inside an incubator, if I was able to hold her. So actually in this kind of like visualization thing that I was doing with this counselor, I was holding myself, which sounds really bizarre, but I was holding myself as a tiny baby. And that, that experience, that counseling was about 15 years ago. Let me think, 20 years ago now. And if ever I have a dip in my life and I feel a bit sad for myself, I sit and think about myself as that baby and I think about myself being held by my parent who wasn't there or by a nurse or it's 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 almost that feeling of being abandoned at such an early age and I wasn't abandoned of course not I wasn't put out in a basket and left on someone's doorstep I was being medically cared for but it's that relationship with your with people who have brought you into the world that wasn't there and I think that 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 then went through my early childhood into my teens uh, and yes I would definitely I would definitely advocate psychological support counseling for through play through whatever intervention is felt appropriate do you feel like I've put you through a counseling session at the moment <laughs> <laughs> no no <laughs> no I wasn't no I don't I just think it's really difficult because you know it's quite emotional at times and um it just, yeah. I know you've been worried about doing this, but you had you didn't have any worries in the world because you've been absolutely fantastic, Katrina. Oh, bless you, bless you. Oh, I've, I've already had some brioche and coffee this morning. I'm going to go and get some more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I can imagine. It's been so wonderful chatting and. I know how powerful your story is going to be when people listen to it. People will rightly, I called you a star before. I should say a hero. Okay. <laughs> Cause there's going to be so many parents of young cloaca girls who are just going to sit back and be in awe of what you've shared with us <laughs> and the advice that you've given us because doctors are great but they don't live the condition. No. What you've given today is just priceless to so many people in our community. So I can't thank you enough. Well, I can't thank you enough for opening those, taking that overcoat from me. <laughs> it's strange because I really don't feel I'm wearing the overcoat now. And the amount of people I've shared my story with since sharing it with you yeah, that's really quite amazing. <laughs> yeah, and you, we look back now and we think, why did we hide it for so long? It's just, yeah, it isn't. It, you can't explain it, can you? No. I think it's to do with, well, the only reason I can think of it is that it's to do with, you know, people don't poo their pants. Children shouldn't be pooing their pants. Adults don't poo their pants. And that's drummed into us from such a, well, certainly into me from such an early age that, it's something that if it happens to you, you, you know, you don't tell anybody, you just try and deal with it quietly, discreetly, um, as best you can. But. Well, Katrina, once again, I can't thank you enough for being so open, honest and bearing your soul to us all. It's been incredible for me to actually hear you talk because so much of what you've said mirrors my life as well and will mirror so many people of adult in the adult community and 
I just can't thank you enough, Katrina. Thank you, Greg. Okay. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye.